This is Gene Lance on the Workers Beat Extra. You may have never heard these particular lyrics to the song, Which Side Are You On? It goes like this. They say in Dallas County, no neutrals there can be. You're either gonna be union folks or scabs for LTV. Well, a lot of people don't even remember what LTV was here in North Texas, except some people call them liars, thieves, and vultures. But LTV was a very big aerospace plant in Grand Prairie, Texas. Now, aerospace, back in the day, was very lucrative, more than it is now, because of something they had called cost plus pricing. The main customer for aerospace products was the government. And they had a general policy of letting the aerospace producers bid just about anything they wanted to bid and then add a little bit for their profit. So they got away pretty much with murder. They could say, it's going to cost us $84 million to build this part of this airplane, uh, so we're going to charge you uh, just a reasonable profit, so we'll make it uh, $105 million. And the government would say, well, okay, that's cost plus. And cost plus was the way they did things. When the union demanded better pay or better benefits or something, they just figured that into their costs and added cost plus to it. And so they didn't really mind so much because the more their costs were, the more they could add on for their profit. This went on until the 1980s when of course Ronald Reagan hit the union movement like a ton of bricks. In 1984, there began to be a bunch of scandals about the costs of airplane products. I remember particularly that they said that an Allen wrench that should have cost 17 cents was going for $25. And there was a little bit about some toilet seats on some airliners that were supposed to cost $25 and were going for 150. So the aerospace companies were raking in the profits and unions that were in aerospace were doing pretty well too. But then again, here comes Reagan. Reagan, the union buster. They decided at the LTV Corporation that they were gonna take away some really important parts of the union contract. One thing they were going to take away was their drug coverage. They had really good coverage on their prescription drugs. They would get a little card, and I think none of the prescription drugs was allowed to, to cost more than $5. So no matter how much their drugs cost, they only paid $5 at a time because they had their little drug card. Another thing they had was cost of living allowances. Every time inflation went up, they got a raise. So those were things that the company decided that they were going to take away. They negotiated from, I think, March of 1984 
to about May of 1984. So this would make it the 39th anniversary this May. The union kind of dug their heels in and said, we're not going to take these cuts. The company said, well, why not? Everybody else in the auto workers union is taking uh, concessions. We all know that the Japanese are your true enemy, not the bosses. So in order to defeat the Japanese, the UAW, the Auto Workers Union, was taking concessions. Almost everybody was taking concessions that year, partly because Reagan was forcing them into it and partly because they actually believed that the Japanese workers were more enemies than the bosses. So the company known as LTV, even though it was making profits like crazy, decided that they were going to take things away from their workforce. United Auto Workers Local 848 at that time was not a strong union. It was a union that really had never been on strike ever since its first contract in April of 1943 during World War II. That facility had never been on strike. They didn't have very many of the members signed up. Only about 70% of the blue collar workforce was signed up with the union. 30% that means 30% were scabs. But the union decided to fight anyway, and they looked at the idea of going on strike and they said, well, we don't think we'd make it. We wouldn't win a strike. A guy came along named Jerry Tucker, who was at that time the assistant director for Region 5 of the Auto Workers Union. Now, Tucker was a peculiarly well-qualified man to run a fight, not particularly because he had run a lot of fights in the union movement, but because he was also a civil rights activist and active with the Coalition of Black Trade Unionists back in his hometown of St. Louis. He was ready for a fight and he said, I think we can do something entirely new. What he said was entirely new was to run the plant backwards. In other words, we were not going to go out on strike, not, for, not even for a minute. We were going to just go to work and do everything that the bosses told us to do and absolutely no more than that. And the most important thing is we were not going to work overtime. Our slogan was no contract, no overtime. That got to be a lot harder to do than it was to say. But Jerry Tucker got us to hold a few rallies inside the plant. I had a particular role in it because I decided to be as high profile as I possibly could be. By that time, I had been working at the plant about five years, and I think I was still a B-class machinist. But I ran for something in, union, in the union elections, which took place, I think, in March or April of 1984. 
I just ran for something even though I didn't have the chance in the world to win. And I bought an old machine that made copies, the kind you turn the crank on and make copies. And I bought a bunch of legal size paper and I started making a lot of leaflets, arguing that we should fight and arguing that we could win. On the back of my leaflets, I put union songs, particularly Solidarity Forever. At that time, hardly anybody even knew the song. The union meetings were small. People had been getting these raises pretty much all their working lives, and they had never really had to fight before. So, when we held our rallies, it pleased me to see people holding those yellow sheets of paper and reading the lyrics for, to Solidarity Forever as we sang during break times and lunch times inside the plant. But I also knew that there was trouble ahead because the truth is we had 30% scabs. We had only about 50 or 60 people that even knew where the union hall was, even attending union meetings. A lot of the officers didn't even attend union meetings. I knew this because I had been going to the union meetings for five years by that time. So I knew there was going to be trouble and I knew that some people were going to get fired. In fact, I expected to be one of them. We ran around the plant yelling, no contract, no overtime, no contract, no overtime. And a few of us, a handful of us, actually did start refusing overtime. So when I went into work on May the 21st, they brought me down to the labor relations office and fired me early that morning. I knew it was going to happen. I hoped I wouldn't be the first one fired, but I think I was. They ended up firing a total of five of us that day. And there was a guy who had been fired a month or so earlier for something, and he had a grievance going to try to get his job back. So there were six of us that were fired and had our jobs pending. It's hard to get fired. It's difficult, especially if you don't know if your union is going to defend you. And if you don't know if your union even can defend you because they never had done it before. So I went home and went to bed, scared to death, really. The phone rang, I think it was about three o'clock or so. And it was the union president. And he said, what are you doing in bed? He said, get down here. We're holding a rally for you and the people that were fired. So I went to the rally and this was the first time I ever got a chance to address my union brothers and sisters from the podium. When I had gone to union meetings before, I had raised my hand and tried to speak, but I never got called on very much. Never got a chance to actually make a speech. But I sat in behind the president this time, sitting up on the podium. And finally, 
somebody out in the audience said, let Lance speak. So I got a chance to speak. I made the point that I did not lose my job the moment that I got fired. I said, I lost my job the same time you did when this company implemented their last and final offer and started taking away all the good stuff about our having this job at LTV, taking away our drug card particularly and our cola raises. So I said, we all have lost our jobs and we're all in the same shape and we all are going to have to fight. I thought it was a pretty good speech. From that time on, I was seen as somebody that could speak at union meetings. And that afternoon, I gathered together the six people who had been fired and who were, whose jobs were pending. And I said, let's don't just stay out of this. Let's form our own club of firees that will meet regularly and we will fight this thing together. That was my great big contribution, although I made some other contributions later on. Keeping the firees together instead of just letting them go their own way the way the union was going to do. So the firees started having regular meetings and we elected somebody president. I didn't want to be president. I wanted to be secretary because I wanted to be the guy who called the other people to come to the meetings and tried to keep the meetings going and tried to keep the retirees working. That was May the 21st of 1984, so long ago. Those are brave guys. I don't know if all five of them expected to be fired, but I know that I did. Well, the rally was not as good as I had hoped. We only got two or 300 people to come to the hall for the rally. And that means that there were 4,000 more over there working in the plant and not walking out in our, in our favor. So I knew it was gonna be a long, hard fight. And sure enough, it was. I stayed fired for 13 months one week and one day. So it was one year, one month, one week, and one day before we won. And I got my job back and a certain amount of back pay. But for a long time, it looked pretty gruesome. The main problem was that we could not collect our dues. Most unions then and now depend on the company to collect their dues for them. If the company doesn't collect the dues, the union doesn't really have the slightest idea how to do it. And the idea that my union had was that everybody was going to have to come over to the union hall and pay their dues either in cash or by check. I told them that it wouldn't work. I said, the only way people pay their bills is when they get a bill. They're not going to come over here just to give you money. And sure enough, they didn't. We didn't collect dues very well at all. And by Christmas of 1984, some of us said that we were only collecting about 10% of 
of our dues. Some said it was 20%. Some of us said it was 10%. That means 80 or 90% of our members were not paying dues. And don't forget, we only had 70% of the workers over there signed up to begin with. Probably something like 95% of the people working in that plant were not paying dues to that union on Christmas of 1984. That was pretty miserable. In January of 1984, I just kind of threw up my hands and said, I can't, I can't take it this daily fight. We had had incident after incident that was just so demoralizing. Some of the most demoralizing things was when our union officers started crossing the Saturday picket lines that I had set up. And then one of them told us, I'm crossing the line because the chairman of the union told me to. So we confronted the chairman of the union and he said, well, we don't need any more people fired. What? You don't need any more people fired? Did you need me to be fired in the, in the first place? By that time, there were 65 of us firees and about 35 or 40 of us I had been able to keep active, keep coming to the, to the firee meetings and keep picketing on Saturday mornings to try to keep people from working overtime. So we were very, very discouraged. January of 1994, I just said, oh, I can't handle it anymore. And I went to Nicaragua to help them pick their berries, pick the coffee berries. I came back three weeks later and everything had changed. Jerry Tucker had changed the deal. He said we could collect the dues in the plant, which is what they should have done in the first place. So they started collecting the dues in the plant. They had a trouble keeping track of the receipts because at that time, nobody had ever used a computer in a union. That was my big contribution. I brought in a Commodore 64 and two little floppy disk readers and wrote a program in BASIC that would keep track of the, of the dues. We soon found that, that we collected about 50% of the dues. Then Jerry Tucker called a strike. The company said that they didn't want to do this anymore. We got a contract in July of 1985 and it was a very good contract compared to the rest of aerospace compared to the rest of the union movement because they had all been taking concessions all this time. We were famous and we deserved it. That was hard. It was really, really hard. I remember it every May because of what happened in May of 1984. This is Gene Lance on the Workers Beat Extra.